A Journey of Faith in Modern Life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This is a podcast where we will explore the who, where, why, what, and how of religion and other topics. Welcome. So back in 2019, there was this article that went viral, especially in mainline Protestant circles. And the title itself was pretty provocative. Will the ELCA be gone in 30 years? Now, for those of you who don't know, the ELCA stands for the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The article was basically saying that if projections remained constant, by the year 2041, this Lutheran denomination would have just 16,000 people in worship on a given Sunday across the entire denomination. And shortly thereafter, it would cease to exist. Now, the ELCA has been around for about 30 years. It was created in 1988 as a result of a merger. And when that happened during that merger, it had basically 5 million on the rolls. It obviously does not have that now. Now, this article could have been a time for a lot of hand-wringing. And Lord knows there's been a lot of hand-wringing in churches throughout mainline Protestantism. But that was not the intent of the article's author, Dwight Shiley. Instead, it was a jumping off point to talk about what mainline Protestant congregations are doing that are a lot causing fewer people to attend and what can be done to turn things around. Shiley is the vice president of innovation and associate professor of congregational mission and leadership at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Luther actually happens to be my alma mater. He's also a priest in the Episcopal Church. If you belong to a mainline congregation and are concerned for its future, then you'll want to listen to this this time where we talk about the article itself and also how churches can move away from the model of association that, uh, that Shiley will talk about. And that was a model that worked very well in the 20th century, and to work, move it over to a model that really fits the current time, the current 21st century, the model of authenticity. So let's listen in to my interview with Dwight Shiley. so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. Happy to be with you. Well, I think the first thing um, that would be good for us to know is um, if you could kind of give a a brief synopsis of the article, um, since it has been a few years um, that it came out, but kind of what you were getting at and and maybe to start off with the provocative title that, that started off. Yes. So, um, so the title is, you know, will the ELCA be gone in 30 years? And, um, you know, to me, the, um, the narrative around, you know, mainline decline and, and all of that has obviously been well established for, for many, many years. I think we're at a point now with uh, many of the mainline denominations where the reality is actually uh, looking at extinction within a generation. So, um, so I just, you know, received several years ago from the ELCA some research showing their own projections on average Sunday attendance and membership for the whole of the denomination. And, uh, you know, and that shows that, um, you know, within uh, actually 20 years, there would be, you know, according to the kind of very linear trajectory of decline, you know, uh, something like 16,000 people or 15,000 in average Sunday attendance in the whole denomination. And um, and then within you know a few years after that, ten years after that, pretty much you know zero zero members. I've also done the, the um, run the numbers for the Episcopal Church, and you know there will be uh, according to the current trends, negative membership in the Episcopal Church by 2050. <laughs> so, um, you know, and this is similar across many other denominations. And of course, it's also important to recognize that many of the denominations in the late 20th century, uh, in early 21st century, like Southern Baptists and 
you know, many of those that actually uh, posted huge growth in membership have also seen that plateau and decline as well. So something larger is taking place right now, um, having to do with people's relationship with religious institutions. And this was all, of course, before the pandemic. And pandemic, of course, as we all know, has, um, you know, impacted that. We're not clear exactly how much, but we know that, you know, in many places, 40% of, of um, you know, 20 to 40%, I think, of people who were actively engaged in congregations prior to the pandemic have not come back once in-person worship has been, you know, a possibility of course, there's a surge in online engagement, and that's a very different kind of thing that we're all trying to figure out um, what that means. So looking into some of the things that you talked about in that article, um, I think one of the first things was that we don't have a really a clear, at least within mainline churches, a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian. How, kind of explain that for me. What, what does that mean that we don't understand that? Yes. So um, I think part of, um, I think the decline narrative, right, the decline reality is, I I, I think I understand that on a couple levels. One is simply a larger cultural shift that's taking place across all sorts of institutions in American life. Mm -hmm. So if you think back to the early 1800s, late 1700s, you know, there was a shift that took place where... um, Prior to that, the church was, uh, you know, really embedded with um, institutions of society in a much more kind of interwoven way, really transplanted over from Europe. Um, And but starting in the late 1700s with the American Revolution, there arose what um, Ted Smith at Emory University calls the age of association, where, you know, really ecclesiology, if you will, or, or what it means to be church was redefined in terms of people joining voluntary associations, formal membership, and then, of course, you know, contributing to those with a business model based upon voluntary contributions, tithing, things like that. Um, and it's not just churches. Of course, there's all sorts of voluntary associations that got created in civil society in American life at that time. And many, indeed, the institutions of American democracy also were birthed in that same period. But what's been happening since the late 1960s is a shift from this age of association to what Charles Taylor calls an age of authenticity. So instead of looking to belong and join, you know, and and serve institutions, people increasingly find meaning in trying to discover and express their true selves. And institutions have come under, of course, a profound critique. Much of that, I think, is well-deserved, given, you know, how problematic institutions have been and continue to be and how exclusive the age of association form of institutional life actually was, right? So um, so the, in the age of authenticity, institutions are held in, with suspicion and they're seen as something that can be useful at certain moments to serve one's journey of self-discovery and self-expression. But the kind of default commitment to institutions that characterize particularly older generations, and we think about this with the, the greatest generation profoundly shaped by life within institutions, military, big corporations, labor unions, you know, all kinds of voluntary, you know, clubs and voluntary societies, rotary, you know, um, veterans, you know, societies, all of those things. That has shifted with the baby boomers, of course, to much greater suspicion. But even baby boomers default is to be either connected to or fighting against institutions. However, with Gen X and younger, institutions are more and more at arm's length. There isn't the same kind of relationship. So we saw this really, I think, with millennials um, detaching from institutions. And I think now with, with iGen, you know, the youngest generation that's coming up, there's, that's very much a trend as well. So, so we see a disembedding from institutions that's taking place in American life without re-embedding. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what does this mean to get to your question about the identity of the church? Well, so insofar as the church has been, has functioned as a social and cultural institution that people found meaning by simply belonging to as a place to make friends, have community, maybe do community service, preserve certain cultural traditions, you know, that um, 
you know, the, the, the congregations, artistic traditions, cultural traditions, ethnic traditions, right? Ethnic cultural traditions. To the extent to which congregations have been focused around that primarily rather than helping people make Christian spiritual meaning of their daily life, they are struggling. And so if, if in the age of association, the work, the core work for a congregation in people's lives in many ways was to provide community, to provide some kind of, you know, mutual support, to be a vehicle for community service and volunteerism, that's not enough. And um, right now, I think the church needs to rediscover a deeper identity, in fact, a theological and spiritual identity that makes clear what's, what difference does being a Christian actually make in your daily life? How does the gospel actually shape the ways in which you, you know, uh, negotiate all the challenges, the longings and losses um, of daily life and of the world? Mm -hmm. And the, the extent to which churches figure out how to focus on that, they will actually, I think, find a hopeful future. The extent to which they try to simply cling on to this old age of association paradigm, I think they will continue to struggle and decline. So what does a church look like that is focused on authenticity instead of association? Yeah, well, so I think, again, the age of the age of association and the age of authenticity is best best to think of these simply as the kind of cultural backdrop that we're in. Mm -hmm. And I think from a Christian perspective, I think we, there's lots of critiques we would make perhaps of both paradigms of how church is organized. Um, but in the age of authenticity, the work really is around helping people discover spiritual meaning. And that's through, I think, simple spiritual practices by which the faith comes alive for people in daily practice. <clears throat> um, and then it's also around storytelling. It's around creating participatory spaces for people to, to connect the theological and spiritual resources of the tradition with what keeps them up at night, you know, with mm -hmm. what they struggle with. And, and that's, uh, it's not enough simply to have a professional Christian, you know, clergy staff simply perform the faith for people or, you know, do that for them. It's really about creating space for people to actually um, interpret the Christian story, scripture, Christian tradition in light of their own experience in a, in a very interactive kind of way. So it's, so the core work I think is introducing and cultivating simple spiritual practices. I think these are not new things. I think these are ancient spiritual practices in many cases, but in very accessible form and creating spaces for people to make spiritual sense out of their lives in a Christian way. And some of the spiritual practices would be something like, let's say, uh, daily prayer, um, you know, I, things to that extent. Absolutely. So all kinds of uh, prayer practices, uh, simple contemplative practices, um, I think practices of, um, you know, of compassion and justice, um, you know, serving the neighbor and, and connecting into the places of, of greatest suffering and desolation in our, in our society. Um, I think it's practices of, of reconciliation and forgiveness, you know, like kind of, if you think about the core things Christians have always done, practices mm -hmm. of Sabbath, right? I mean, in a, in a society that um, is so full of distraction and uh, consumed by self-justifying -justif overwork, <laughs> we might say, um, to, to practice Sabbath is profoundly countercultural and spiritually freeing. Um, so, you know, in some ways, it's, it's things Christians have always done, like gathering around scripture, praying together. Um, it's, you know, serving the neighbor, serving the needy. It's um, having fellowship and community. Um, it's, you know, and again, it includes practices like worship, you know, Eucharist and all that, but particularly things that are done integrated into daily life. You know, so I'll just give you an example. So, um, mm -hmm. my wife's the, the rector, lead pastor of an Episcopal church in St. Paul and St. Matthews. And, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, we, we've done at that church over the last several years in trying to, to sort of recognize and address this shift was first to say, well, what does a, a Christian life look like? What are the what are some ways of thinking about what's different about a Christian life in terms of practices relative to just I think you know like a good life ethically you know that a secular person would imagine in today's society, right? 
And so we did a, some process of kind of trying to define that. And then, and then really introduced a lot of practices, you know, one of them being a practice of dwelling in the word, which is a simple form of kind of Lexio Divina that's done in community. Um, that's very imaginative and participatory and, and really powerfully transformational for the people participating in it. Um, spiritual storytelling practices, you know, again, something like just asking people to pair up and, you know, share a story of a time when you felt most spiritually alive or energized, what was going on in your life at the time, you know? And I think often many inherited congregations are not designed around that depth of engagement with one another, right? That doesn't usually happen at coffee hour, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't usually happen during worship. Um, and so, so, so getting spaces where those practices can flourish, um, you know, even as something as simple as um, the be still prayer based on, you know, Psalm 46, which um, we introduced at Advent several years ago, and actually printed it on a little business card, basically, and gave it to people. We practiced it at the end of um, of every sermon during Advent, and then gave these cards to people and said, "All right, just take this and try it during your daily life." And it was amazing the stories we got back of people, you know, like an ER nurse pulling it out of her scrubs and saying, "You know, this is how I get through my shift," or um, a woman who works in, you know, at a bank, basically saying, "I." I just have a stack of these up at my cubicle and people come and take them, you know, and we have good conversations about faith as a result of this. So, so sometimes it's very simple things that are very accessible for people in daily life, but that open up a depth of encounter with God, right? So we might think of the church at its simplest being, um, you know, community people gathered around stories of the risen Jesus, and um, that can't just be a monologue by, you know, professional Christians. It really has to be people sharing their own stories. So one of the things I remember from my seminary days is um, kind of the different schools of theology. And one, of, of course, is post-liberal. Um, and one of the themes of post-liberal theology is, is narrative. Um, so, I mean, is, is there a connection with that, that the, the importance of story um, in the life of the church? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, so the post-liberal uh, tradition, um, going back into George Limbeck and Hans Frey and those mm -hmm. folks, is, is I think a really powerful one to say that, you know, we are people of stories. We're shaped by stories. We're shaped by narrative. And, um, and, that, and then that the community is a community that's pract that practices, if you will, certain stories and embodies them. And, um, and it's not simply enough to have the right ideas about God, but really it's about having one's imagination, one's way of seeing the world to be shaped by the biblical story, you know, to find oneself in the biblical story and have it be, uh, you know, more like, you know, a pair of lenses through which you see and interpret reality mm. than simply an object that either we extract sort of how to live a good life, you know, lessons from, or that we deconstruct and, you know, kind of take apart and um, critically. And I think there's a role for all of that. But but often in, I think, a lot of mainline churches, that deconstruction leaves people without much to live by. Uh, so we learn sort of what's unhelpful about the Bible, but not how do we actually, how does the Bible, the biblical narrative actually free us to live as faithful people counterculturally. And another thing that you wrote in that article is about how sometimes churches, for lack of a better word, I think they get their mission messed up in a way that might think of themselves more as a community service organization. And it may not be intentional, just, just that's the way it has been. Um, has that, I mean, do you see that, kind of being one of the issues of decline that, that maybe the church has in some ways forgotten what its mission is all about, who they are in, in, in society. Exactly. So the age of association, it's very easy for the church to become just another, you know, uh, nonprofit organization, you know, an NGO with liturgy almost, you know, that does some good work in, in the neighborhood. And of course, you know, you don't need a church to do that. There's all sorts of wonderful nonprofit organizations in civil society that are doing all kinds of great work. So what's distinctive about the church? What, what value does it add 
And I think that's really important. And the answer to that is spiritual and theological, right? It's about God. And, and it's about a, a story that is, you know, unique, the biblical story and the Christian story. And so, so I think that insofar as the community service uh, work is disconnected from any kind of spiritual or theological roots or practice or narrative, it's very easy for it simply, you know, to, um, you know, I, I think for the church simply to be like any other organization. And, and again, in civil society right now, a lot of those age of association organizations are, are, are going away. So let me just tell you a quick story on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've done with, um, we at Luther Seminary have done with church leaders is we take them on a field trip to Surly Brewery in mm-hmm. Minneapolis because um, Surly has a thing called Surly Gives a Damn. And it's basically community service, um, you know, events that they do on weekends where they partner with the nonprofits and people gather and many, often, you know, young people, millennials, iGen people who aren't in church, they gather they go do community service and they get a free beer afterward, right? It's <laughs> the motivation, right? But, you know, people are now um, getting married who met on Surly Gives a Damn. And so what we do is we, we've taken groups to Surly and we have one of their, you know, volunteer leaders or staff talk about how this functions for them. And, and they, those volunteers sound just like church leaders, you know, like, hey, we have people come together. They do these great things. And um, and then you look around Silly Brewery and it's just full of people and there's community and connection. And there's lots of people who don't wouldn't feel welcome culturally in m- many churches. Right. There's lots of tattoos in there. You know? um, and the question we ask the church leaders we take there is, so what's different between Surly and the church? Because Surly in places like it are serving a function that church used to serve. If it's about finding community, if it's about even doing community service, coming together, you know, connecting, like you can go to a brewery and do that now. You don't need to join a church, right? So what, what is distinctive about what the church actually offers? And if we're not clear about that, you know, I can see why people would just show up at Surly, which again, you know, a lot more accessible, um, a lot easier to, to get there. And it's a lot more, um, you know, it's not asking people to move into a culturally foreign space, which sadly is the case with many congregations. Um, so, so I think we need to be clear about that. What is our core story? How do we tell that? How do we shape life around that? And we introduce people into it, not assume they know it, but really apprentice people into that, um, particularly as an embodied story. So I, I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up in California in a secular home. And as I was exploring faith, you know, when I was a young adult, I was always struck by looking at some other traditions like Buddhism, where it's very clear that if you're a Buddhist, mostly what you do is practice and you practice mm-hmm. meditation, mindfulness, things like that. And, and the church, it seemed to me, I was puzzled because it, because Christianity was about practices too. And yet that was never at the forefront, you know, helping me actually practice these spiritual practices in daily life wasn't what the church was mostly focused on. It was really about this kind of cultural celebration, rituals done by professionals that mostly, you know, I was an observer of, right? Coming to worship, right? And how it translated into my daily life wasn't so much the concern of those churches. And that's a missed opportunity because, you know, Christianity isn't just a set of ideas. It isn't just a cultural organization, it's actually an embodied way of life in community, Mm -hmm. right? And that's essential. So we've been kind of dancing around this, but what is the role of the pastor in this new age of authenticity? Because it sounds like in the age of association, the pastor was the professional Christian. Um, But it seems like the role of the pastor is very different um, kind of in this new age that we're kind of entering into. Yes. So in the age of association, the pastor is a professional Christian, but also a manager administrator of a nonprofit voluntary organization. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of energy being spent on trying to deal with buildings and budgets and programming and committees and, you know, uh, all of that stuff, finding the resources to keep this this thing going. In the age of authenticity, you know, a pastor is a, a spiritual storyteller. Um, someone I would think of as a, as a lead storyteller in a community, as sort of someone who gathers the stories of people's lives and helps connect them to the biblical story, right? 
um, a someone who embodies actually the spiritual practice and spiritual depth. Um, so who's living out of that kind of identity, not primarily an identity of a professional mm-hmm. um, or an administrator or manager, but really an, an identity of a disciple and the cultivator of community um, of of, of practice, right? So someone who's able to, to take the treasures of the tradition and introduce people to them in accessible ways uh, to teach those spiritual practices and help people connect um, those practices into their own lives um, so that they can, they can become, you know, embodied in those people's lives. So it's, it's a very different kind of focus. And in my experience is that most pastors have inherited congregations or established congregations are almost completely consumed by doing, by managing the institution, especially now that's harder. It was harder even before COVID with fewer resources for most places. And then COVID came and it was like, whoa, like, how do we do this? You know, multiple modes digitally. Now it's hybrid. We're doing it, you know, online and in person in most places. It's exhausting. A lot of clergy are just worn out. And I think the, the, the depletion is in part the exhaustion of this whole model of organizational institutional life that is not being translated to emerging generations. And so it's very difficult to be responsible for that, particularly when um, the people in the neighborhood who might actually respond to accessible forms of Christian practice and community, if if the pastor was able to be embedded in the neighborhood, relationally connecting with people, listening to their stories and, and creating those kinds of spaces, right? If, if that, you know, if that could be the focus, I think a lot of pastors would be energized by that, but almost everything in their present life precludes them from spending time there. So I think then the question is, how do you change the culture? Um, Obviously, one of the hardest things to do is to change an institution, um, especially when those things have been set in their ways for generations. What are the steps that you can do, can take in your local congregation, but even as a denomination that can move uh, a culture, change a culture to be more of a church in this time, um, as opposed to a church for 1957? Yes. So, um, so I'm going to speak to this and on two levels, the first level is for those who are within an established or inherited congregation, um, where there are all sorts of expectations that come from the existing membership. And most of those, mostly those expectations are often kind of take care of us, keep things as they are, like, don't change, you know, the culture too much. Don't change our practice too much. In that situation, I think, um, there's some powerful things one can do. First of all, is recognize that you can't do all this work yourself as the pastor or leader. You, it's really got to be the work of the community because it's adaptive work, not technical work. Um, so when you introduce practices that actually get people um, engaging spiritually in these ways, that is the first step. So again, dwelling in the word is the, is the practice that um, I've seen for, for many years have the biggest impact when it's introduced into a congregation because it, it messes with people in some wonderful ways. Um, and, and the way it works is simply you pick a biblical text, um, you know, you have a couple people, you read the text once or maybe twice with some silence for reflection. And then you invite people to pair up, preferably with a reasonably friendly looking stranger. So someone who's maybe not totally familiar. And you spend maybe three, four minutes each sharing what caught your imagination in the text or what questions the text, you know, provoked in you. So there's no right or wrong answer. It's not about, it's not Bible study in the traditional sense. Like there's a place for that as well. But, and then, and then when people listen to each other, they share back with the large group, what they heard their partners say. So it's actually an exercise in listening. And that's very disruptive in a society that, as we know, isn't good at listening, right? Especially not listening to strangers. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's a practice that I've seen be, incredibly powerful in opening up people's engagement with scripture, learning to listen to each other. And then from there, it's easy to, to try things like a spiritual storytelling exercise that I mentioned earlier, just, you know, share a story of a time when you're most spiritually alive or engaged in your life and what was going on there. Um, what might God have been up to? Um, 
you know, another simple practice is called dwelling in the wor world, not dwelling in the word, but dwelling in the world. And that's one where you just simply invite people to reflect back on their previous week and identify opportunities they had to share God's peace with someone. Could mm -hmm. be, you know, a family member or a stranger, a coworker, a neighbor, I mean, anyone. And then to go back imaginatively into that encounter and think, well, what might God have been up to in that encounter? And if I were to revisit that relationship, what might God want to do? So again, what we're doing here is these are practices that get people thinking in very concrete ways about their daily life and how God is in fact showing up in their daily life. And um, so those kinds of practices, and there are lots of others like that, they begin to open up the culture of a congregation to talk more about God, actually as the acting subject of a verb, you know, that God's actually doing something in the world, which is hard, I think, for many, you know, modern people to do. And they begin to shift the energy. So if the energy in um, maybe in the age of association model was often around pastors or leaders bringing energy to catalyze engagement with programs and, you know, offerings that the church is, is doing or try to get people to volunteer, that's pretty exhausting and it's harder and harder today in most places. But when you make this shift toward you know, people tapping into their, the energy of the Holy Spirit actually in their daily life and their daily encounters. That opens up a very different pathway because the focus is no longer, how do we get people involved in church in this voluntary association, contributing to it, bringing their resources and keeping them busy in it, which it's not clear has ever been good at actually making disciples of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they shift it more toward how do we come alongside people in daily life and listen to what keeps them up at night and help them connect the gospel and the, and the, the living presence of God in those spaces, especially those spaces of despair, of desolation, right, of, of suffering, of trauma. And so that's a shift in energy that's really important. But when that begins to take place in a congregation, and it's less about how do we get people busy at church and more mm -hmm. about how does the church actually help people live faithful Christian lives wherever God has placed them in their daily, their daily life, their workplaces, their neighborhoods, their city, you know, their town, whatever it is, that opens up a very different kind of hope. Now, let me just speak to if, uh, if those who aren't in established churches and have the freedom to maybe start something new, which is what I think denominations and judicatories need to be doing far more than they are now. Then it's about, I think, being hosted, embedding oneself in places where life is already happening in the neighborhood. Where are people hanging out? Where is their community? Maybe it's Surly or the equivalent, you know, um, you know, and showing up there, forming relationships, listening empathetically and compassionately to people's stories, and then inviting people, you know, to connect with simple prayer practices or spiritual practices or spiritual conversations, connecting with biblical stories. There's lots of different ways this can look. Um, out of that, Christian community begins to develop, but in ways that are very culturally accessible and contextualized for those people in that neighborhood, right, in that space. And it's much easier to do that than it is to try to shift an established congregation to connect with those neighbors, but um, they both can be done. I don't know if you've heard the story, and I'm hoping to interview the pastor um, soon, and it's actually a church not too far from Luther Seminary, um, Peace Lutheran in, Lauder, in Lauderdale, Minnesota. Um, was a, it's a small congregation, and the, the people were honest that they said, we're, we're dying. And the pastor just kind of did a very simple thing, and that was, let's be of help in the community. And that seemed to really put energy in the church, um, would that be an example of how of this kind of new way of doing things and, and an example of how an established congregation could, could do this? Yeah. So that's a great story because it was really yeah. like, how do we just, you know, um, spend ourselves, if you will, in serving our neighbors. And, um, and they, they did it, I think with, with wonderful love and compassion for their neighbors. I mean, they were in freedom to just go and, and try to, you know, to be present to the neighbors and help out in all kinds of ways. You know, I think for many people outside the church, 
you know, the church does not have a good reputation right now for all kinds of good reasons, right? So, so when the church does that kind of thing, when it really sort of offers itself in a loving way to the neighborhood and listens deeply enough to the neighborhood not to do that in a kind of imperial colonizing, we're going to come in and fix you kind of way, but a genuine, like we want to join in and, and serve and address neighborhood needs, even the neighborhood needs that you're identifying as neighbors, not that we're identifying as church, right? We want to follow, if you will, your agenda and serve alongside you. There's often the opportunity to repair the church's reputation, to earn credibility. Mm-hmm. And it's simply through being loving, you know, loving people and doing it compassionately. Now, the key thing is that out of those relationships, at some point we do have to actually talk about faith, right? It can't be enough simply to be, well, those Christians, they're, they're just really nice people. And they just come and, you know, they just, they're like a United way, but, you know, or salvation army or whatever, but they, but they don't, you know, they're just here to kind of do charity. It's just not charity isn't enough. It's got to go beyond that into community, right? So Christian mission, you know, what's distinctive about Christian mission is the forming of community. And that piece has to be part of it. And that means patience. It means, you know, planting oneself in, in, in a neighborhood and um, there's no quick fix, you know, you can't, it's not a drive-by kind of thing, which is how a lot of churches actually do their sort of charity work. <laughs> you really got to actually risk yourself to be changed by the neighbor and meet the neighbor on their terms. And and that's a very transformational journey for a church to take because it's spiritually challenging and opening in a lot of ways. So I, I think that's a great story. I think there's lots of work that could be done in those kinds of ways. But I think even, you know, more simply, I think it's even better as a first step for congregations to try experimenting with simply showing up in neighborhood spaces um, to simply be present and listen and learn Mm -hmm. what their neighbors longings and losses are, you know, and, and forming community alongside them wherever life plays out. And only out of that credibility of just having formed community with people and been in relationship with them then I think there's opportunities for practices that can um, come out. But but the first practice is listening. It's listening and learning and and being present. And, you know, I think a lot of churches are sort of paralyzed behind their own church doors waiting for people to show up, which is less and less likely today. And, um, And so I think to get some action teams of folks who are willing to go and be hosted in the neighborhood, to listen and learn and even come back and reflect on what God might be up to in those neighborhood spaces, whether it be the sidelines of a youth soccer, you know, uh, league or something, or, you know, with the parents and families, or whether it be, you know, a group that in a dog park or, you know, people who do yoga or, you know, whatever that is in whatever your context is. Um, I think, I think it begins with relationships and listening. And, um, Kind of starting this whole thing off was about kind of where the, the ELCA is headed in 30 years. And we've also talked about um, your own denomination, the Episcopal Church, and where it's headed. Are there examples within either of those denominations or even other denominations of churches that are and maybe even middle judicatories that are kind of embracing this new way of, of thinking? Uh, yes, there's, I mean, there's lots of examples of, um, you know, small experiments taking place. One of the things that's, I think, most helpful is the Fresh Expressions movement. Mm-hmm. It really started in the Church of England. Um, it's very ecumenical in the UK, but it's now spread all around the world. And um, and increasingly is being embraced, I think, in various denominations in America, and actually not so much the Lutherans or the Episcopalians yet. I hope it will be more. Um, where again, the idea is let's start the sort of, if you will, micro communities where life is playing out, often led by lay people and um, not even formally theologically trained folks. And learn. I think the key thing is learning, right? So, um, so I've worked with a lot of congregations um, over the years who are trying to make this shift. And, you know, and I can think it, for instance, um, in uh, rural Wisconsin some, you know, very, you know, small um, rural congregations that have embraced some of these practices. Like, so here's an example. One congregation um, decided that they would set up a table at the grain elevator as the farmers were bringing their crops in, you know, in the fall. 
And they put like some hot cider and some coffee and they offered to pray with the farmers in gratitude for the harvest. And, you know, these were some like elderly Lutheran church ladies, right? Who had never prayed with anyone aloud in their lives, right? And they tried this experiment and the farmers loved it. And they actually made these great connections. And the farmer said, well, can you come back in the spring when we're planting our fields? And can you kind of pray over the fields as we're planting, right? And it became this whole connection. Or, you know, I can think of um, a, a church in, this is an Episcopal church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where they decided to do an experiment of setting a table out during a town festival and putting these strips of cloth and some Sharpies. And they invited their neighbors to write prayers on the strips of cloth. And then they tied them to a fence that was there. And, um, and the neighbors loved to do this, right? And so they started to gather the prayers of their neighborhood. And, um, and actually, you know, it, it went so well, they decided to do it again. And, you know, they, they've gathered over four or 500, I think, prayers of their neighborhood and even woven them into altar cloths that they celebrate communion over. Um, but it, but it allowed them both to listen to what their neighbors were yearning for and struggling with and, um, what keeps their neighbors up at night. So the really important learning there, but also to make some connections with people that they would not have been connected to otherwise. And so, you know, it's these small experiments like this, I think that are really important as a first step. Um, it's not about, you know, pastors coming up with grand visions for some program to do all of this with a big budget and, you know, all of that in a committee. It's small action teams of lay people who are doing practices like dwelling in the word or sharing spiritual stories or learning how to practice discernment in daily life in simple ways who then invest presence in relationship in neighborhood spaces and begin to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in those spaces into deeper connections with their neighbors, trying small experiments, learning along the way. That's the kind of journey that unfolds, which as I read the book of Acts is actually much more what's going on. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of big, you know, strategic plans in the book of Acts. I see, I see the people of God being led by the spirit improvisationally, through a lot of redirection and frustration and hardship into deeper connection with, with neighbors. And that's pretty exciting work. It's not what many congregations have been designed around or focused around in the, for a number of years, but when that becomes the focus, it unleashes all kinds of new energy and possibility. How has COVID kind of changed any of this? I mean, I think a lot of us, I definitely would say in my own practice as a pastor that COVID has really been disruptive um, to the life of the church. Um, how has any of this really, has it forced people to maybe look at this and look at church in a different way? Has it maybe hardened people or kept people away from church or how, how has the church been affected? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we're still learning. So, I mean, I'll, I'll share a few things, but I, I, I do that with a big asterisk that, you know, I think we still need to, to learn a lot more and do more research around actually how the impact of COVID. But a couple of things, I mean, one is it, um, it broke open a lot of churches that weren't going, that weren't ready to innovate. They suddenly had to, right? They mm -hmm. had to adapt. They had to be flexible. And so if the focus was, you know, the old social contract, if you will, was gathering in a dedicated church building around rituals conducted by professionals, professional Christians, you know, um, and suddenly the building was inaccessible, the rituals were inaccessible, or we, we were, you know, accessing them virtually at best. I think that was very difficult, a displacement for a lot of people, difficult, particularly for clergy, I think, um, but also for, for many congregation members, um, especially those with, within more sacramental traditions, you know, where not having access to the Eucharist was an enormous loss, right? Um, but I think churches figured out, well, we can connect in different ways, you know, using virtual means and we can, um, the churches that only had a very passive, you know, like live streamed worship without any opportunity for people to actually have small group connections or smaller discussions, you know, I think, I think it's e easy for people to simply to walk away because, when you can live stream any church anywhere in the world on Sunday morning or anytime during the week, whatever it's more convenient for you, well, you've got, you know, different competition now, right? And people can go find the best preacher they want. So a lot of people in the Episcopal church were live streaming 
the Washington National Cathedral, because if you want a beautiful, you know, well-produced, you know, high church Episcopal thing in a, in a cathedral world, they're pretty good at it, right? And a lot of smaller churches can compete with that. But I mean, it's a pretty passive experience, right? So the churches that figured out how to connect people together, whether it be small groups meeting in driveways, whether it be resourcing people with things in the home that they could use to practice the faith or connect with their neighbors, you know, or create community. Like those are the churches that actually something new broke open, I think, in their life in some creative ways. And there's no going back simply to the old way of doing it. Um, there are churches that had phenomenal reach online with people that would never have otherwise come. So one story on that is um, there's an ELCA church in Des Moines, uh, West Des Moines, Iowa, called Hope Lutheran. It's, it's the largest church in the ELCA. It's really thriving, multiple campuses. But um, at Easter, a woman showed up at that church, um, and, and she introduced herself to one of the staff. And she said, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and I, I found you during COVID online. And, and she showed a scar where she, she'd had operation for, for cancer and, um, and she'd been through this horrible time. And she said, you know, your church got me through my ordeal and I had to come celebrate Easter with you in person. Wow. So she flew from Washington, D.C. to Des Moines, Iowa <laughs> to be with them. And they're like, we had no idea who you were. Like, we had never met, you know, but somehow something had happened there. And so there are some churches that have, that have just found these connections um, you know, I know of a, um, a church plant in the, you know, Hollywood area that was started just before COVID. We had about 30, 40 people meeting in a space in person. And then when COVID happened, it all, you know, kind of, they had to go virtual, but suddenly they had people in New York and London who were actually worshiping with them. And then now they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do? Because, you know, we, we don't want to miss these, these people from London and New York and elsewhere, and, you know, we also want to do it in person. So, so I think there's a lot of complexity. It's not easy to sort through all of that. Um, I think there are a number of people who were pretty marginal to churches who found it easy simply to drop away, for whom it was, really wasn't at the center of their life, wasn't helping them make meaning, wasn't that big of a, a commitment. You know, they had other things more important, and they're just gone. You know, they're, they've, they've left. Um, and so... It's not easy to know how do we navigate connecting more deeply the people who have been lurking, if you will, online more passively, you know, watching live streams or things like that, connecting them into community and practice in a deeper level, like that's a challenge. And then, of course, um, continuing to rethink some of the inherited forms of doing things and saying, well, is this the best way to do it in this moment? And, you know, that's a great question to ask. What is God calling us to as we try to be faithful in this, this time? Um, I think the, the pandemic obviously involves so much trauma and suffering for a lot of people. So there's a huge opening for the gospel to speak into people's lives and for the church to, to focus on that. Like, what good news do we have to a hurting world? Like, we have to answer that question clearly. If we can't answer that question, people are going to walk away, or they're never going to be—they're never going to be in, in, interested and engaged. Early on, when we were talking just about the numbers and everything, and especially within mainline denominations, um, one of the questions that comes to mind for me is, why is this tradition important? Um, there has been—there was an article also this summer. I think it was written by. Um, American Baptist pastor, but also a professor, Ryan Berge, about his pastoring of a church in small town Indiana and how all of the, the mainline churches there are, are going, are losing members. Um, and just his concerns about the loss of, of mainline um, Protestantism. In your words, what, what is important about this tradition and what would be lost if it doesn't, didn't exist or is not there in 30 or 40 years? So I think the charism of mainline Protestantism is, um, at its best, is a theology of grace. It's a theology of promise, not of judgment, not of performance, um, not of condemnation. It's, it, it's, it can be a theology that's more inclusive and um, that engages the intellect 
um, that is able to carry forward deep traditions, deep, deep rootedness in Christian wisdom and practice from, from the generations. Um, and so I think those are powerful things. I think particularly a theology of grace, a grace-based theology. Um, there's a lot of shame in our world right now with cancel culture and all the things that are going on. And, you know, I think there's need more than ever for a message of grace, um, a, a message of inclusion, um, a message that has, has an expansive understanding of God's work in the world. Now, I think a lot of the mainline churches are, are struggling because they're not able to make those theological treasures culturally accessible to people. So if you look at the um, the mega churches, for instance, you know, like here in the Twin Cities, places like Eagle Brook, they are multi-site, they're growing rapidly, they're picking up a lot of, you know, disaffected Catholics and Protestants of various sorts. Um, they are much more culturally accessible for people to to connect with, enter into, participate. They're speaking people's language. You don't have to culturally migrate into some strange, you know, building with strange rituals and uh, all lots of archaic, you know, music and language in order to access what's going on. And I think that's, um, that's something that the, the mainline churches need to learn from, not to say that, that we should adopt those same practices of worship and culture and all that, but the commitment to actually meeting people where they are is really important. So, you know, if you ever take the time to go and just look through church websites in any area, right, and see what what's important and who is who's the website actually designed for. Almost all mainline church websites are designed for their own members. Hmm. They're not designed for people who have never been Christian or don't know anything about Jesus or never consider going to church. Like they're mostly just. In fact, this time of year, I was doing this actually recently, and most of them were saying some version of "Give us money because <laughs> it's fall, right? Stewardship season." And, you know, if um, if I'm new to Christianity, if I'm new to the church, I'm already freaked out by the possibility of like ch checking out the church, showing up, you know, even watching a live stream or whatever, like what a turnoff that is, you know, and instead, if we were able to say, no, 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 we have this message of, of a, a beautiful message, a hopeful message, an inclusive message that is grounded and an understanding of the triune God's life and love for the world, which we know in Jesus, and and that that we know Jesus to be one who is um, who is the embodiment of God's love and grace, right? Um, and and to invite people into that as as the focus and the center, that is that would be a beautiful thing. Um, and I think there we haven't experimented in the mainline creatively enough with how to translate the treasures of the tradition into today's cultural language. Well, I think um, to wrap this up is to kind of say, what word of hope would you give to pastors that are out there today? Um, as you said earlier, um, there are a lot of pastors that are burnt out right now. Um, and for a lot of different reasons, but mainly because of the pandemic, what word of hope can you give them um, as they are leading their congregations? So I think um, it, at the end of the day, that comes back to leaning into one's own relationship with the living God mm -hmm. and being grounded in that relationship, you know, God's love and mercy, and, and especially in these difficult times. Um, you know, the fact that you as, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, as someone who's baptized, you have an identity um, as a precious child of God that you can neither earn nor lose. And that that is your, your primary identity, actually. And the professional identity you have as a, as a pastor is secondary to your identity as a disciple. And that that identity as a disciple frees you to risk yourself in love and to risk your community in love for its neighbors. And, um, and that as the culture breaks down old structures and institutions, there's only despair unless we're able to attend to the presence and leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we find hope. It is actually recognizing the Holy Spirit is alive and moving in the world today. 
And there is hope on the other side of this. And the way we've always done things is not the only way to do it. Of course, because we haven't always done it that way. It's always mm-hmm. changed, right? It's always changed throughout history. The church has been through all kinds of struggles and transformations and challenges. None of this is new. God is faithful, and it's God's faithfulness that actually sustains us. It's God's energy, not ours, even we're depleted. Um, so there's a deep spiritual regrounding or reconnecting that I think is essential in this moment. And then to be gentle on yourself, to give yourself grace, and to hold the patterns and structures of present church life loosely enough to be able to discern what the Spirit is actually bringing forth in terms of new life. Because the Holy Spirit is no less active and creative right now. In fact, there's all sorts of possibility and new things are breaking open. But as long as we're holding tightly to the old structures, um, we're not going to be able to embrace and have our hands open to receive the new gifts God's giving. Well, thank you that for that word of hope. And um, and thank you for this time. This has been helpful. I hope it's, it's helpful for pastors and lay people who have heard this. Um, so thank you for sharing um, this good word, Reverend Shiley. You're welcome. And let me just say, um, if you're interested in learning more, I uh, want to point you to a couple places. Yes, um, One is uh, Luther Seminary's Faith Lead um, Digital Learning Hub for um, Christian Leaders, which has a lot of resources, has um, some of the practices I've been describing are there in you know, videos or downloadable um, you know, resources you can take and, and try in your congregation. And that is faithlead.luthersem.edu. Um, And then also another resource is a book that I published several years ago called The Agile Church. And it's really, you know, delves into a lot of this more deeply and how to actually lead this kind of work um, on the ground. Okay, great. I do actually use Faith Lead. I've loved it um, so far. So I am very thankful for that resource. Great. Well, it's great. Been a pleasure to be with you, Dennis. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Professor Shiley was able to take the time to chat with me. And I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And um, if you like what you're hearing, I hope that you will take the time to consider uh, subscribing to your um, favorite podcast platform. We're on a lot of different um, platforms, some that I'm not even aware of. Um, I would just find the one that you uh, like the best and subscribe. And also, I'd like if you can also do another thing. Um, It would be great if you can leave a rating or a review on your podcast platform, especially on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Um, When you write out a review or a rating, that basically allows and feeds the algorithms that makes it easier for this podcast to be found by other people. And I think that this is a podcast that's a little bit different um, in that I think we're trying to really focus on some of the issues, especially facing mainline Protestant churches. We do want to actually also talk about evangelical um, congregations, but um, mainline churches don't always get a lot in the news. And I think that this is an important tradition that needs to be talked about a little bit more and also looked at and critiqued a little bit more. And so this is a way to do that. And um, not many podcasts are doing this and and doing it uniquely really from not just the eye of a pastor, but through the eye of a journalist. So if you can, please consider uh, leaving a rating, leaving a review um, so that other people can find this and get to know the message. 
And also consider going to the website, enroutepodcast.org. You can sign up to be on the mailing list for the newsletter. Um, We do have past episodes there. Um, You have links to some of the articles that I've written, and I write about various different things. Um, And you can also, if you want, make a donation. You can do all of that at the podcast, enroutepodcast.org. So that's it for this episode. Uh, You will be seeing a few new episodes coming, and um, stay tuned. And hope that you had a good time on Enroute. Uh, Notes on religion and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Take care. Godspeed. We'll see you soon.